Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest is sculptor Littleton Alston. He shares his personal and creative journey from a poor neighborhood in Washington, D.C. to the creation of a portrait statue of Willa Cather, unveiled in 2023 as one of Nebraska's two contributions to the National Statuary Hall Collection at the U.S. Capitol Building, and the first in that collection made by an African-American. Oftentimes in art history, they'll show you the, the murals in Buffalo um, or the bison murals, etc. But sometimes they don't show you the clay-sculptured bison on the floor. We want to share it, whether it's the Colossus of Rhodes or whether it's the Statue of Liberty. These are symbols which represent the ethos of being alive and aspiring. Sculptor Littleton Austin creates works of art that focus on the essence of the human figure and human spirit. Awarded the commission to create a portrait statue of Willa Cather, in 2023, his statue was unveiled in the National Statuary Hall Collection at the U.S. Capitol Building as one of Nebraska's two statues. Austin is the first African-American to be represented in that august collection. Austin's work has been exhibited and collected across the country, and he has completed dozens of public commissions. He grew up in Washington, D.C., moving in 1989 to Omaha for a residency at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, after which he joined the faculty at Creighton University. He resides in Omaha with his family. Littleton Austin, welcome to Lives. Oh, thank you, Stuart. Thank you. It is a long career that has many years, of course, ahead of it, but, but you have quite a pedigree of creativity. What was your childhood context? Well, you know, I've talked so much about my, my upbringing in many different formats, and I, I think it's, it's helpful, especially for the younger uh, student or younger artist, to hear it, for sure. Um, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., my, my father had just come back from the war, World War II, and we, um, we settled in Washington. And, you know, I just recall one day, one particular day, I was very young. Uh, I had uh, become sick, and my dad had to take me to work as a sick child. And we were walking by the FTC, I think the Trade Commission. Uh, I saw the large statues there. And it was really um, a lightning bolt moment for me as a child. Something that even at that time I could not put uh, into words. But I knew then that that was who I was, um, that I wanted to do that, that that was something that had resonated with me beyond anything. I couldn't describe it, but there was a deep feeling of uh, identification. And, um, you know, his perception of it was, you know, an old soldier, literally um, not really thinking about art, headed to work in the government, you know, got a job as a vet. Later in life, he, he did. It was an interesting circle that, that sort of closed itself. 
And we, I think we tend to think of things as shorter spurts of effect, cause and effect. But this took many, many years. That first encounter, I don't think he understood what I was looking at or what I saw. And he wasn't the kind of man who would ask. And so when I asked him, you know, I said, Dad, uh, who did those? Because I jerked away from him because he walked very fast. And he looked at them and then he looked down at me and then he looked up at the statues again and he looked down at me and he sort of said to me in a kind of terse way, um, convicts, son, convicts. And he said, damn it, come on, let's go. We're going to be late. And he dragged me along and I was turned, my head was completely turned the other way. And I'm watching as this, these are leaving a site. And of course we get to his work and I have to sit in a chair and, at the time, it was post-integration, uh, but he was basically, his job was to ship boxes around the country, all over for the Department of Agriculture. He was quite talented, but that was how they, they dealt with it. And, uh, but then later in life, I was doing a sculpture, uh, putting it on campus at school when I was in undergraduate school. And I called him and I said, would you help me install this? And he said, yeah, uh, sure. And I didn't expect him to come. You know, it was from Richmond. I went to Virginia Commonwealth in Richmond and uh, we're out. I have my friends and I, and we've poured the concrete and we're working on the, installing the sculpture and around the corner comes my dad. And he's walking, he took the bus, the Greyhound, and he rode from Washington to Richmond, took the day off, and helped me install the work. And for me, it took me right back to that moment. Here he had spent his life crossing that mall 30-some years, just back and forth, back and forth, to the bus, And it never gone into any of the museums, not a one. Had never at least paused to look at art. Um, yet here he had this young burgeoning artist on his hands, but he had no idea. So I think it was an affirmation for me much later. Also, I think uh, I could see in him a certain curiosity or questioning about what what was I doing? You know, how does this work? Um, I remember him asking me questions about, did I weld everything together? And I would say, yes, I cast this part. I welded this part. And he was impressed by that. I really appreciate that portrait you paint of not only that moment, but also the evolution of your relationship alongside your work with your father. There's a really wonderful NET documentary about you and the Willacather statue that we'll talk about later. But in, in it, uh, you share the story of your mother supporting your artistic development. And, and it seems that perhaps unlike your peers, you, you knew you were interested in art and you developed that, but exactly what you did with that seemed uncertain at that time. But your mother was instrumental, I think, in a pivotal moment with the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Would you share that pivotal moment? Oh, sure. I think um, 
first, you know, uh, my parents had separated at that point, and uh, we basically lived in a community in a what would be classified as a ghetto. It was a pretty rundown environment. My mother was basically uh, raising us and trying to make ends meet, and it's just a difficult time. And um, I remember I was at that age. I was in junior high school. I had no idea what was going on, but I know I was at the age where, um, and I think it's good for your listeners to know that um, this still goes on, uh, but where gangs began to look at you as prospects for their dastardly deeds, which they do. They play upon the community. And uh, so I, I had been in a fight before that earlier that week in the bathroom. And it was not of my choosing. I just refused to give the, the, the guy my, my money. And so I thought that this was going to be uh, it. Here I am, a junior high school kid, and, and the PA system asks mm -hmm. me, you know, calls over my name. And so I head down to the office thinking, oh, I'm really going to get it. I'm really going to be expelled. And it wasn't my fault anyway. And, you know, I didn't throw the first punch, and I only defended myself when needed. And, you know, all the things that I was taught. And I entered the office, and then in the anti, in the deeper office, uh, was my mother sitting in this um, little oak chair by the principal's office, assistant principal's desk. And she had in her, uh, beside her, two pieces of cardboard with uh, scotch tape, transparent scotch tape, holding them together. She had basically taken all of my drawings, because I did a number of drawings from National Geographic, because that was really my world. And she folded those into a handmade portfolio. And the principal and, and both of them had worked out that I would go off in school and we'd go and try out at Duke Ellington School for the Arts. This was a very new high school. And they were drawing students from all over. And it wasn't an easy entry. You, you had to show a portfolio. And I'm sure if you were in dance or music or other areas, you had to perform. And then they would weed out. So basically... We had to draw still life. And I turned to my mother and I said, I can do this. I had been drawing. My uh, drawing had played such an important role in my way of communicating. I, you know, oftentimes artists aren't the biggest talkers. We just make and think. But other times, I'm sure, it's the other way around. But for me, it wasn't. And so... I just remember seeing her and not understanding. I didn't understand what was going on. Here I was entering, thinking I was, I was headed to the guillotine, you know, and uh, for me as a junior high school kid. And uh, no, there, there's my mom. And what does she have? And I looked at her and, and she said, yeah, we're going to go on a bus. And so she had enough money. We didn't have a lot. And we took a bus from school, we didn't have a car. And then we took transfers upon transfers. And this would become 
the route that I would take when attending Duke Ellington. I'm particularly struck by your statement that when it came to the actual audition to do the still life drawing, your refrain is, I can do this, I can do this. Was this the first moment that you internalized the idea that you are an artist or did that happen in a different way or, or perhaps more organically? Hmm. That's a good question. I think, um, I don't think for me, I didn't really see myself defined in a particular way. I knew I understood color differently and understood form in particular. Tactile things appealed to me. Um, understanding negative spaces and spatial relationships worked for me. But that uh, manifested in drawing and me really trying to understand and look at things and translate them through my, my hand, um, expressing, but also capturing. So I think a lot of artists, you know, it's that question is, is an artist born or not? I really can't answer that. All I can say is, that for me, I was not, um, I was very sensitive, still remaining, and um, I didn't quite fit. I kind of knew what I liked and what, what was working, what I enjoyed, but I didn't identify this. This is what I am. I had no examples. Remember, there are zero examples in that environment. And so, if anything, there are a great degree of distractions and menacing things which can cause you, if you're a sensitive person, to close up. And uh, many young people experience that every day, and I feel for them because uh, they didn't manage to, to get out and went through that process and probably will never find their, their path but, or what they were meant to do, at least to themselves, feel that sense of I was meant to do these things but I can say that when I said that to my mom as we were there I felt the sense that I was also home that I had arrived at a place surrounded by others who were trying to do similar things where I grew up it wasn't that case um, and only early on can I recount my brother and I, we used to go down to the U.S. Capitol. And we'll talk about that later because there's a link in there, which is fascinating. It's, and my life has been those, those connection of, of synergy or circles, um, some over long periods of time. But that really um, made me feel at home. And so I, uh, the first year, and I sell this because it's, True, and yet at the same time somewhat humorous. At least my, my fellow students at the time thought so. Was um, We had a yearly awards uh, assembly at Duke Ellington. It was my first year. Uh, I remember my teacher telling me, you're going to be getting an award. They didn't say for what. And I had no clothes to wear. And my sister-in-law pulled me aside. She was, at the time, she had been dating my, my eldest brother, who was a policeman. And uh, she said, I'll take him and we'll rent you 
tuxedo. So we went and we rented a tuxedo in high school, my first tuxedo. And the poor guy dressing me, fitting me out, I'm sure he was like, who is this scruff? But he, he managed to get me, a, she managed to rent me a tuxedo. So I wore that to the ceremony and we sat in the front row. And all of these seniors are receiving awards for excellence in science, excellence in this, excellence, because it's a transition point in the school. It's really the art school, but there's residue of the seniors who were there from the high school. And then they call my name. I'm the only one sitting dressed like this with my bow tie. And they say, uh, Littleton Alston, the award of perfect attendance. And other kids started laughing a little. And I stood up and I walked up on the stage and received my award and shook their hand and came back down and sat down. And uh, for them, they didn't understand that for me, it was a journey to the edge of the earth. I had gone so far that I wasn't going to miss a day. I wasn't going to be late. Uh, I wasn't going to miss a moment of it. That it mattered that much to me. And so um, it was a very special thing for me because I realized that Early on, the lessons that when given the opportunity, seize it, um, do your best. That was a perfect example of that. Did you know then, and in what ways did you see perhaps, that sculpting and sculpture was going to be your life? Did you know that going into the BMS? What, what were your aspirations for that? Sure, I did. I knew that. Um, I also felt like residencies still to this day are the thing. I met artists there who went from residency to residency to residency. You know, you meet different artists and you talk to them about their pasts. You know, where I come from, my, you know, my upbringing, the path is filled with rocks and stones and glass. Sometimes you don't make it out. In these communities, we have, communities here in Omaha, where you have artists who are younger, who have no path, or thank goodness for the union, and things like that, where there can be, and really the Bemis and others, you know, the Koneko, these things can be beacons. And I'm thinking of the Bellows Studio. These can be beacons for young people. Um, artists have always been there always around, always alive, always being born every moment, wanting to express themselves, wanting to find their voice. But it's a tough journey for artists who come from compromised or, or communities that aren't affluent. Very tough journey. And it uh, oftentimes can be just a matter of luck or coincidence. Other times it can be consistent and you find that, but the padding that comes when you are uh, either well healed or come from a, a structure where someone has done that before, you can get advice and you know the, you know who you are. People can say, "Oh, I see those tendencies in you," and "Oh, you're like your uncle or you're like your mother or whatever." 
So I think for the for me for the Bemis was uh, a residency that gave me the chance to really spread my wings bigger, to kind of make work that I wanted to experiment with. It was a long journey, and I think for me, meeting artists from around the world because at the time the Bemis was the only game in town, and Re and June had and still to this day made such an impact through that. And the city itself has benefited from that in subtle ways that aren't acknowledged, but are definitely there. And what they did was create a space for people to grow, artists to grow, to communicate from all over the world, to get a sense of identity, um, and also to sort of feel as though what you do matters how you can put your, your voice together. And so um, I met artists who were, you know, who had trust funds and artists who had nothing and artists who were going from residency to residency. You know, those things are, are the ways in which artists survive. Some will do commission work, some will do other work. These types of things, some will teach. These types of things um, are the means to an end of trying to make your work. It isn't the end in itself. And so I think that's very important to understand. Um, so for all the younger uh, artists of color and those who are not in excellent situations or situations that foster that, uh, their creativity, um, try to find other artists in your life or that you see and reach out to them. They'd love to hear your voice and uh, help you. And like I said, organizations like the Bellows are instrumental in helping young artists. Those types of acknowledgement of what art is in society, we're behind. I think our culture doesn't, we monetize everything and we don't appreciate the value of what something which cannot be monetized immediately has um, and art is that type of thing where the artist may not even know what they've made or what it is or even the title, let alone what it's worth. Um, but they know it had to be made and they'll do that. And I think you're talking about that creative muse, that voice that echoes through time all and cultures. So when you meet other artists from other places, I think that really was the, the key for me, for the Bemis, was this international feeling that I was a part of a larger family, um, that I wasn't alone, that uh, even though I had come from a situation which was not conducive to fostering artists, I had come that journey and that was an environment for me to work in and to make work, and it was pivotal for me. I wonder if this is a good segue then to talk about the Willa Cather statue that you created for the National Statuary Hall in the Capitol. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just talking about uh, the, the creation of that, that particular statue. Sure. First off, I've done a number of commissions, I, quite a few. And uh, I enjoy doing commissions and occasionally I'll uh, 
compete nationally or internationally or even locally if I find that uh, it's of interest to me. And I was made aware of the Cather competition and it was a national, international competition. And uh, I was working in my studio and thinking about whether I wanted to apply. And I had read Cather uh, in school a lot, but a little as part of the regular regiment. We read Faulkner and others. And uh, so that literature really sort of has helped me to understand the world around me much better. Um, and still to this day does. Um, so when I saw the prospectus on that or the uh, call for artists on that, I basically said to my wife, I think I'm going to apply. Uh, I also have something in common with Willow, which is that uh, I was born in Petersburg, Virginia. And so we're both sort of made that journey out west to Nebraska. So there's this kind of sense of connectedness there, too, in a very subtle way. Her life, of course, was very complex, as was, I think, you know, how she got out here and how all of that played out. But I then applied, um, thinking, you know, I'd done other commissions, thinking I would just be considered. But who knows? I mean, it's we have people competing from New York and Chicago and other places. And uh, uh, they had sort of winnowed it down to three finalists upon which we had to make maquettes. We had to do presentations, and that's part of the process. And I spent a lot of time doing research on projects I work on, on subjects that interest me. So I'm constantly aware of history, constantly looking and uh, thinking about things and their impact. And I felt as though in my presentation, I would really talk about how I understood Cather and how my present work might lend itself to expressing her in a way that would would matter. I had no idea about being the first African American. If I had one, none. That had nothing to do with it. Only did I find out later. But that was after I had one and was further in when they were filming. So I made a two-foot maquette of Willa and then did my present PowerPoint presentation and then sort of wrapped it up and went back to my studio. And normally when, my, when I have a lot of information that I have to process, but I used to ride my bicycle around in the studio. I would have a work in the center of the space and I would ride around it and look at it in the round repeatedly, thinking as I wrote, almost in a trance, really thinking about it. So to substitute for that, I, I'd go to my studio and I would just sweep. So I'm at the broom sweeping, and uh, it's hours have passed. It's still the same day, and uh, there's a call on my cell phone and I pick it up and 
didn't realize that if you win, they call you right away. And uh, they had announced that I was the winner of the competition. They hadn't announced it to the public, but they told me. I was elated, but I was also thinking to myself, oh my, I need to get to work. I need to, to do more research. I need to do more reading. And so I was overwhelmed by it emotionally, but I was also realizing the daunting task ahead of me, just beginning to see the tip of it and realizing that it was something that would involve many years. But I had no way of knowing things in the future, only knowing that I knew uh, I was up for the challenge. I could do it. And uh, I felt a sense of uh, connectedness with her even more so. I sort of found myself then beginning to do more research, a lot more reading, uh, refining, working with the committee, uh, meeting the committee, getting to know them. The sad part about it, and I don't know if you're aware, but maybe you are, is I won the competition pre-insurrection. So uh, when I went to Washington to meet with the architect of the Capitol, I was in the hall, Statuary Hall, and there were Cub Scout groups and kids from all over the world, children from India and other countries, just marveling at our capital. And the architects, representatives, took me around, curators, and we talked about the collection. They gave me a sense of what was there and all of that. Very beautiful time. So my memory of it was in two positions, really. Pre-insurrection and then post-insurrection. I want to talk about and go back in time, just for a second, if I may. There was a point when I was growing up, we, we couldn't afford brand new bicycles, you know, because my parents had split apart. And, but we had ingenuity amongst us and we could cobble things together. So I learned how to fix chains. I learned how to put chains together. I learned how to fix and repair tires with tire repair and all that on bicycles. And my brother and I, we were, we were in a food desert. What you call a food desert now, we had no idea what it was. And most of the community we had lived in had not rebounded from the riots. But in order to go to the store, which was a liquor store, we would go and get what were called penny candies. And we would do tests or whatever. My mother would give us a nickel or a dime. And we'd get the candies and we'd break them apart and share them. And in order to go to that grocery store, we had to walk across East Capitol Street. And it's a big street. Two lanes one way, two lanes the other and an island in the center. And my brother and I, we were crossing over and standing in the island, and I looked left, and I looked way off into the distance, and I could see the actual statue on the top of the dome of the Capitol. And I turned to him and I said, we're gonna go there. And it was just beginning the summer. He looked at me and I said, yeah, 
And I had put in together in my mind, we have the means, these bicycles we had built. I'm tired of riding it around in circles on the block. Let's take an adventure. And I knew if I saw it, I could find it. Just stay on that compass. So we, we rode our bikes down East Capitol Street, all these different neighborhoods, all these different issues. But we got there. We went through the Union Station, and then we went up and into the, the Capitol. So I had been there as a young person, not knowing that I would have a sculpture there eventually. It was interesting to me. So that experience of seeing it as a young person, these statues, which really didn't look like me, but some were bronze. So they had kind of a brown skin, but a sense of grandeur and a sense of this mattered. This was important. Really resonated. I remember touching the edges of things and because I very tactile. And here we are. We've We've gone through the committees and I met with them and went back home, went back home and uh, was working on Cather. And that process is a dialogue. Any commission is a dialogue. And artists have to keep their vision clear and they have to know their worth and they have to know what to give and what not to give so that they themselves are honest and true to their own work. I think the worst thing that younger artists can do is be um, influenced in such a way and told, go make 10 more of these, or five, but in orange or magenta or something. So you never find yourself, you never find your voice. And it took me many, many years to find it. Moving from abstraction to representational work and committing myself to that. So the committee would come usually once every month or so and would check progress and we'd have conversations. And it's some of it's in one of the films about that. And the, the sad part about it to me, and I'm sure to many of the members of the committee, is that a number of the committee did not see the installation of the work and dedication, although they saw the maquette and, and some saw the finished bronze. Uh, so time, that insurrection really was a shut down everything in the capital. It ruptured war, what we believed to be sacred and turned it into a point of dispute and almost a sense of uh, disrespect. And so in society, I think we have to be very, very careful of, in understanding what is most valuable. Freedoms are most valuable. Democracy is most valuable. And that symbol, even though it is this large, white, beautiful building, represents a nation that is growing and it's changing. So I had those, that contrast in my mind. The whole time. I remember I have Willa finished sitting in my studio and we're waiting for installation and we're waiting. We have a lawyer that's part of the process 
and we were on a Zoom call. And I said, uh, well, I'll just finish the piece and take it down there and install it. And she said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works at the Capitol. Everything has to go through different approvals, through different offices, through different senators. So you had to work through the system. So that system's there to ensure excellence, but also to check and double check. In essence, curb your enthusiasm, young sculptor. Of course, I wasn't young, but... Um, so I really began to understand that this was a long-term process. And then when we got the green light to go, I seized. I said, yes, we can, we're going to do this, yes. And we, we drove it out, and they went into secure storage. And there are designated installers who have the proper security clearance to enter the capital at night. And so I was informed that we we're going to be installing. So we flew out because all of this comes together rather quickly. And, uh, and then the dedication and others. We go for the install night, we show up at the Capitol and they shuttle us into the side doors. Uh, the piece is coming in through the loading dock and they've uh, cleared it out. There's no one in there but us. And it's like being in an opera house after the, everyone closes the door and you get the job to sleep on you know, the stage. You can stop and just sort of get a sense of the space. And everything comes in in an orderly manner. And the installers began, we have conversations about placement and position. And representatives from the, from the architect of the Capitol's offices and giving me input. And, and I'm saying, okay, I think this works. What do you think? I think this works. And we, we place it for the dedication. We place the pedestal. And then we place the bronze. And that, I thought, was a really interesting moment because she had come in without the pedestal and I had sculpted her. This, and I felt the kinship to Michelangelo at a point. Not because I'm great like Michelangelo, but because he had to do the David knowing that it was going to go up very high. And he had to think about how things look from the ground. So when you look at the David, you know, the hands are oddly large. The head's a little large. So he's thinking about those things. Well, I thought about the same thing, but not with such a distance. But those are sculptural questions that a, a sculptor has to think about. And I, I felt that kind of sense, well, my goodness, this is the same problem. You know, it's a Renaissance problem, but it really is a modern problem too. It's a sculptural problem. So I would sculpt Willa up high and down low and then up high. I worked on scaffolding. So when she went into that space and placed on that pedestal, the piece would work in the round. You would see everything. You know, I thought through the entire form over and over and over again until I had refined it to the point where I was happy. So when she went in and was installed, and there she was being attached in, everybody got really quiet. And one of the, I think it might have been the 
representative from architect's office said she holds her own in the space. I said, oh yeah, she does. And there's a sense of movement in her that wasn't fictitious movement or a sense of grandeur that wasn't a sense of imposed grandeur, a calm demeanor, but a confidence. I wanted her to be on the prairie where she had grown up, where she had known the soil beneath their feet, had understood what that was, had informed her writings, all of her writings, and how that sense of place could be recreated within a small vignette that would capture her. What is the role, the function, the possibility of commissioned public work in public spaces? Hmm. You know, I, I often think about that. Um, I had the honor of serving on the Arts Commission for many years in, under Alan Tubach and the painter and dear friend and i think it's always been there in some way uh this sense of art and sculpture in particular in the public you know we look at the cave paintings the Lascaux cave paintings and oftentimes in art history they'll show you the, the murals and the buffalo um or the bison murals etc but sometimes they don't show you the clay-sculptured bison on the floor or on the stone. They were working in multiple mediums. Sometimes to try and connect with the spirit of that animal to hopefully sustain them. Well, in some way, we kind of translated that into a public language of who we are, we want to share it, whether it's the Colossus of Rhodes or whether it's the Statue of Liberty. These are symbols which represent the ethos of being alive and aspiring. So we often need to be aware and pick our heroes carefully. And is that term even relevant anymore, the idea of a hero? Um, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about that, the hero's journey. I don't know if that even applies anymore. I do think that it is one we can use. It is useful because people understand it from generation to generation because heroes come up again, even in children's cartoons. And so that concept of uh, a shiro or a hero being there is important. But I also think we also came into a reckoning in the public space with public statuary, a reckoning that was overdue. You see, I went to school in Richmond and walked by the statue of General Lee probably a thousand times, being keenly aware of it and understanding what it meant and represented. The catch here is no one ever bothered to explain to people that this was done after the war as a way to assert and almost to remind 
uh, African-Americans who were returning from the war, like my dad, to stay in their place, to not expect freedom, be the quiet shadow. I'm so happy that has happened. Now, does it mean that the work itself is not of merit? Uh, no, there are works there that are of great but I also think they need to be now in a new space, which defines them for what they are, so that the population understands without misunderstanding the intent of how they were created. Not the artist's intent, but uh, the Daughters of the Confederacy's intent. So I think uh, as we start to journey forward in our public spaces and building them and redesigning them, we shouldn't throw out the figure. We tend to a representational work. I've often said, you know, zoom in on a Rembrandt, you might find a Franz Klein. Go close enough. All art is abstract. Yes, that's a term to identify things. But it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. They're different in many ways. And what a beautiful gem. In many facets we have in creativity. And so I think we have to think about teaching younger people to understand and appreciate that there are things that are of value that other artists have dedicated their lives to over the past, which are recurring themes. One of them is the representation of human beings and how we see ourselves in a modern environment or even in the past. I've heard you say that you sculpt from the inside out. Insofar as you've been producing tangible objects outside of yourself, have you really been spending these years actually working out what's inside you, sculpting yourself? Interesting. I think there's some, a great deal of truth to that. I think you're trying your best to understand what you're seeing, what you want to see, what you want it to be. I remember early on that when I made this journey, you know, I had taken my uh, first sabbatical and it had decided I was going to go to Europe. I had never been, my wife had been. I had the opportunity to study in France at an atelier, figurative work. I had been doing a little and really doing some other pieces where my, my wife would say, oh my goodness, that looks like a pelvis. Oh my goodness, that looks like a shoulder. And I would say, yes, I, I've been influenced by Richard Hunt. I had spent just a couple of weeks working with him in Chicago on a project we took down to Montgomery. And he had had an impact on me working metals. And uh, I have a deep love for that of all kinds. So that transition happened in Europe. I had gone to the atelier and we would spend eight hours sculpting. Uh, we'd do a bus first and then we'd move to the two-foot figure. And uh, the, uh, the instructor really didn't know a lot about anatomy, but we would talk about that. The artists, we were all living in a house there and we would talk about it. And they were from Europe and the U.S., um, all over. And we would gather 
over meals and just talk about sculpture and sculpting. And one of the things I had planned on that journey too was to stop in Paris, spend time looking at the works in the Orsay and the Louvre, and then going down to the residency. And then after the residency, going back and seeing what I had gained, not dismissing the residency. And like I said, it was a regiment of, you're there early in the morning, you drive over, and you just go into the atelier and you would work. Literally, take lunch, work, take dinner, go home, study. And in that time, I began to understand the figure more. I began to understand some of it, but there was a gap. Anatomy. So I tried to teach myself anatomy as much as I could, um, beginning to try and understand the Latin and Greek, which define the body, and really drawing from books. And then I had a, another sabbatical. I had made work at that time too. And I spent that sabbatical in the cadaver labs at the medical school with the M2s, second year medical students. And uh, they didn't know I was an artist. Only the teacher and assistants knew. And uh, the professor of anatomy, I was fortunate enough uh, at Creighton had uh, had gotten his undergraduate degree in sculpture. So I entered into the class and began the study of form from a scientific perspective, um, but also from an artistic perspective. Um, and that helped inform my understanding of the body and what's happening when gestures are made, and how gravity affects certain forms, features of the face. France taught me so much about portraits. People often say, oh, I think I'll whip off a portrait. What they don't understand is that the human head is so complex, so exquisite. That there's a tremendous amount of subtlety and range is infinite with expression. And capturing that can be a lifelong journey in its own right. So that just kind of gives you some insight into some of the things I think about when working. You've talked about the anatomy of the human body. You've also talked a little bit about the figurative representation using uh, materials to create this three-dimensional artifact. In the work that you have done, have you come closer to understanding, at least for yourself, what is the human condition? What is the human spirit? I think that's a lifelong pursuit. I think it's something that uh, uh, there are times when you touch upon it in your work and you know you've got it. It's the spark is there. Um, it sends chills throughout and you realize I've captured not just the likeness, but in essence, um, 
I think that's really the beauty of it and the pursuit. Um, I think every individual has that. And you see those things that that come out as outward expressions or forms or characters. You know, Henry Moore is one of my heroes, and surprisingly, most um, people would, would not realize that, but he would say something, he say wonderful things, and he would say, and he, he used the term chap. You don't recognize a chap by the color of their eyes if they're 100 yards away and walking towards you. You recognize them by the way they tip their head or the way they their gait or the way in which their shoulder slumps on one side. You notice the things of their presence, and then later those things come. And he's right. I think there are so there's so much there in the human form and representing nature and in art that we often dispose of so rapidly because of technology. We just assume it. It's like, you know, someone watching someone surf and on their phone and saying, Oh yeah, I know what that's about. But I've never surfed. So I think it occasionally it comes up and do I have an answer? I don't. I think it's a pursuit. And I think it's one of the big questions um, that artists have to ask themselves. And when do you find that essence of, of what it is to be human in your work? And maybe those are the best pieces. I think I've captured that in Willow. I think that is my greatest work. And it's because I was ready for it. I wanted it. I rose to it. And, uh, you know, I found out later, being the first African-American in that collection, that is there for generations of younger children, older people to see. Um, and it's a testament to the state itself really seeking to find a bigger voice, contemporary. My guest today has been sculptor Littleton Austin. Littleton, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.